0: Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Today we are in part two of our series that we began last week called 2020. We're, we want to see ourselves in the eyes of God. How do you see yourselves? We, we want 2020 vision uh, in this new year of, of who we really are. We're asking, what is our true identity? who are we really? What does it mean to be human? Why are we the way we are? What are some of the lies that we listen to that make us seem to do the things that we do? And what is the truth that can set us free? To start things off in this message, I want to ask you something very important, very spiritual, and that is how many of you enjoy scary movies? Okay, right some of you brave enough to raise your hand in church way to go horror movie fans in church there we go yes okay I I do too I have to admit I love scary movies I like I like some of them there's a couple kinds that I don't go for I don't I don't do demons and I don't do clowns <laughs> because both of those are verifiably evil and we know that to be true it's it's not really a debate so I don't really do those kinds, but the rest of them I like you know all that kind of stuff. Um, so quick test. i want to I want to run a quick public survey here. You see these pictures. This is a picture of a, a s- s- creepy stairs down into the basement. This, of course, is the creepy, dimly lit hallway in the abandoned psych hospital. Um, now, if you in real life are being chased by the psychopath and you hear the noise, the creepy noise coming from down these stairs, or at the end of this hallway, do you A, run outside as fast as you can and call the police, or B, hand your baseball bat to your friend and say, hold this, I'm going to go check out what that noise was. (laughs) In real life, A, if you're in a movie, of course you will do B, right? Uh, that's just what you do, it's, it's uh, the plot of every, you know, teenage slasher film that in existence is predicated on people doing really stupid things, and uh, one of my favorite things whenever I'm watching any kind of creepy movie is, even more than the movie, is watching the people who are watching the movie, right, because <laughs> that's, that's hilarious, uh, people start talking back to the screen, don't do that, where are you going, that fool's going to get himself killed, right, no, don't do that. Or uh, it also works if you're watching a romantic comedy, right? We find ourselves um, yelling back at the screen, what are you doing? Don't walk away. Love is staring you in the face. (laughs) She's perfect for you, right? Or why are you going with that guy? He's terrible for you. No, don't do it. There's these moments where we we talk back to the screen because all these plot lines only work if people do really stupid stuff. Now, here's what's fascinating. What's fascinating is that We all experience this in our own lives. We experience this all the time. How often have you been the person doing the really stupid thing and the person yelling back at the screen? What are you doing? This is really dumb, right? For some people, to to be human seems to be making a lot of stupid mistakes over and over again, we talked a little bit about this last week, right? How sometimes, in the very moment that we're doing something, we're also screaming at ourselves, Don't do that! This is dumb! Run outside and call the police, right? But to be human is to, to live in this sort of divided self. We live with this strange divided self on the one hand. Uh, like we saw last week, our fundamental identity. It, the Bible starts on, on page one, page one of the Bible. It says our fundamentally, fundamental identity is that we are created in the image of God. Created in the image of God. His divine image is stamped on every single one of us. That imago Dei, it's the Latin phrase used by the early church. They would talk about that, the imago Dei, the image of God that we walk in. We're like these beautiful stained glass windows that God's light just pours through. But as beautiful as that picture is, we can't answer the real question and be authentic and honest of who we really are without moving to the next chapter of human spiritual evolution. And it is literally the next chapter in the Bible, which is that there is something fundamentally something now broken. There's something fundamentally now broken in us. We create, but we destroy. We love and we cultivate, but we hate and we grasp like greedy little monsters, right? We're we're glorious and we're gory. We're beautiful and terrible, beautiful and broken. we, We are these wonderful... Terrible creatures. It seems like we, we live in this world where the world, the words "child" and "abuse" exist in the same sentence because it's a reality. I was thinking tomorrow we're going to be honoring all over our nation a man, Martin Luther King Jr., who stood for equality and justice and freedom. But we live in a world where his name and the word "assassination" is mentioned in the same sentence. It's a reality. There's something very wrong with the world we live in. And we we all know it. We all feel it. Everybody has a sense of it. And and the human condition is just this long, thousands of years long exploration of what is that? What is this brokenness? Now, whatever word you use to label that that something wrongness within us, it's good for us to stare it in the face. We have to talk about it. To to admit that it exists, we have to face it, right? To ask, what does the Bible say about its origin inside all of us? Because the Bible, this ancient document, has some profound things to say about what is this going on. And it doesn't help us to pretend it isn't there, right? Uh, It doesn't help to just pretend like all human beings are just universally, you know, light and love and we're all just nice and perfect and shiny the way we are. We are capable of great good, but we are also, there is something dark and fearful and jealous and mean in there too. And the Bible describes over and over and over, it describes this wrongness using the word sin, the word sin. Now that's a loaded word, I realize, here in the 21st century, that, that word sin because it's some people get really triggered because of whatever you know association they have with it or whatever baggage might come along with that word but when the bible speaks of it 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 it's not just talking about the things that we do that are naughty right that's kind of what we usually we think of the word sin oh that's you know the naughty things no, there is a reality that we can't escape. In Scripture, sin is also how the writers of the Bible get at that dark part of humanity, that darkness in there, that experience that we have. So for us to, to find healing, which is where we want to get, we want healing, we want to know ourselves as God knows us, to see ourselves as God sees us. We can't just tune this part out or pretend like it's, it's irrelevant today. The Apostle Paul one of the greatest theologians to ever exist, just the greatest thinker, philosopher of the church, he wrote this about his own experience. The apostle Paul himself says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. This is Paul in a moment of incredible transparency to the church. And it's freeing for us, right? Right? This is basically Paul yelling back at his own screen, going, you idiot, <laughs> right? Who's the real Apostle Paul? There's an Apostle Paul who does the stupid stuff, apparently, and there's an Apostle Paul who's commenting on the Paul who does the stupid stuff. So who's, who's the real Paul, the one doing what he hates doing, or is it the Paul sitting back going, why are you doing that? But he admits what we all know to be true. We all know it, that because of our sin, there is something fundamental, that is lost, that is distorted, that is bent, and only Jesus can restore it. That is the good news. The good news isn't you're a sinner. The good news is that in your heart, you already know it, and Jesus can restore you. Jesus is the healer, right? But we are beautiful, but we are broken. Just a reminder, uh, the last week of this series, which is going to take us all the way from from Genesis to Revelation over the next 6 or 7 weeks. Um, we're going to do a message that is just going to be all Q&A cuz hopefully as I'm talking even you're kind of yelling back at the screen in your, in your mind. You're probably thinking, wait a minute. I got but what about but what and those are good. I'm glad. I hope you're listening. I hope you're taking note of all those questions, and I hope you're sending them in, because in our last week, we're going to do a Q&A message, and all the questions that you guys are sending in, uh, that you come up with as you're participating in the series, you can send them in. You can use the phone app. It's really easy. That's the easiest way to go. to straight to, straight to me, uh, it's it questions. There's a button, questions for pastor. Uh, or you can email us at questions at gchurch.net. Or, of course, you can write them down on little pieces of paper. We get it that way, too. Just put them in the offering, and it'll make its way to us. Um, But that's where we're headed. We're going to choose as many of those as we can, especially those that seem to really be resonating with lots of people. And we'll tackle those at the end. Melissa and I, we're going to try to do that together. So that's where we're headed. In the meantime, too, you don't have to wait until that last week to... uh, talk about these questions. We invite you to get involved in a home life group this week. If you're not already, we started last week, our new home life semester. You can go by the welcome center. They have uh, some information for you about the different home life groups. You can also go to dchurch.net forward slash home life, and you can click on uh, any of our home life leaders there, you can email them directly and they'll get, they'll get back with you on that, uh, tell you where they are, or you could just show up if you know where they live. That'll be fun too. Um, but it gives, home life is great because it'll give you a chance to start talking about these things, talk them through. We did it in our home life group this past uh, week and it was, it was awesome, just some of the questions that are already coming up. To talk through things and to connect with people because that is how we believe we, we, we learn best is relationally. We learn best. It's, it's really the, the best way to grow. Okay, here we go. Let's dive into today's message. Today we're in Genesis we're going to chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. The scriptures are on the screen as well. Um, we're looking today at... This is an iconic moment in, in the story of Adam and Eve. This is the fork in the road where the humanity chooses a direction and has to you know, pay for the consequences ever since. But let's start at the very beginning here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. By the way... Uh, Just interesting, it's not identified here explicitly that this is anything other than a serpent, just, you know, one of your other talking snakes like you see every day. Um, It's not actually until the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, that the New Testament more explicitly hints that uh, this was actually Satan. Um, But so, so we know this is the representation of Satan here, but at the time, it just says serpent. He says to the woman, did God say... You shall not eat from any tree in the garden. Now notice, first thing the serpent does, first thing he does is it just starts with a question. He's just planting a seed, all right? Is it really true? Is it really true? He's just planting a seed. And then he t- kind of turns up the volume a little bit here to suggest that God's really just kind of a party pooper, isn't he? Right? I mean, he, he's got the, all these strict rules, doesn't he? I mean, you can't eat from any of the tree. You can't eat from any of the fruit in the whole garden. So, right off the bat, you know, if, if you're paying attention to the story, he, that's a lie. God didn't say you can't eat. In fact, God said you can eat from everything except for the one. And so the serpent's kind of in, injecting some confusion here. He's planting the seed in Eve's mind that God is holding out on her, that God's holding out on her. Now, think about it. Up until this point, we have no reason to believe that the tree that he's talking about here, this knowledge of good and evil tree, was even a temptation, a source of temptation for Adam and Eve. Remember, there is no good or evil. There's no concept of good and evil. So it's not like Adam and Eve have been walking around the garden going, oh, look at the tree I wish we could touch it. I wish we could grab it. Oh, it looks so good. I can't do it. Oh, I just want to. I just want to bite. Oh, I wish we could, but we can't. Oh, but we can't. I wish we could. There's no indication that it was a source of temptation. There's no knowledge of good or evil. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no concept of this stuff. So for them, God said, here's the garden, right? It's all yours except that tree. And that would have just been accepted by them because they live in this perfect relationship of love and trust and they're just like, oh, okay, no to that tree, all good. So God's not tormenting them there. I hear some people kind of like, well, God, that was really mean, God to torment them with this, this tree of temptation. I don't think it was. I think what the tree functions as is an element of choice. It's an element of choice right there in the story so, so that the Adam and Eve could be fully image bearers by making a free will choice to trust and love God. It's, it's an element of choice. And so it's the center of the garden, and that, that helps us to, to represent the central role that choice plays in our identity as image bearers of God. Verse 2, it goes on, it says, The woman then said to the serpent, uh, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Okay, good job nor shall you touch it or you shall die. Actually, God never says, we don't have a record of God saying you can't touch it. Um, but Eve, I th- you know, she, she's, I think she just sort of reasons, well, if you can't eat it, you probably shouldn't, you know, caress it. Or, you know, uh, so she's trying to make sense of it all. Also, uh, you know, I think it's interesting. There's no record that um, God gave her the command directly. He gave it to Adam before she came along. And so there's this, there's this idea that, that perhaps she's getting it also secondhand from Adam, this command. Uh, But she's trying to make sense of it all. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't eat it. We shouldn't even touch it. Finally, the serpent just dives in. He goes full accusation mode now. He says that God is not out for their good. He says, look, you will not die, right? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Really, like God. First of all, she's already made like God, right? Male and female are created like God, in the image of God, knowing love. What is God? God is love. She is already made in that image. She's already made knowing what to do, knowing, knowing care, having that stamped on her. Responsibility to take care of creation, knowing what it means to be created to be creative. They're, they're already like God. But as far as knowing good and evil, here's what's fascinating, is evil had not yet entered the realm of creation. It had not even entered in. So there's no evil to get to know. So by saying you'll become like God, knowing good and evil... Satan is tricking her because what Satan is not telling her is that the way you'll make this happen is when you make the decision to eat of this fruit, you will be injecting evil into your experience, and then you will know it, right? You'll know it in that that Hebrew sense of the word, to know something, not just intellectually, but, but actually experientially. You will know the experience of both good and evil because you'll be experiencing good and evil like if someone says, oh, oh, I know hardship. Well, that doesn't mean they read about it in a book, right? It means they've been through it. So she will know good and evil. Those categories, though, meant nothing to her at the time. It's it's not about what's good or what's bad. It's just there's life, and life is love and relationship, and it's beautiful. But now there's going to be this thing called called good and this thing called evil, and you're going to know it if you bite it. And it's it sounds intriguing, but it's going to be the way of doom. So verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, good for food and delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. Notice those three things, good for food, delight to the eyes, makes one wise. Delicious, beautiful, and enlightening. Three attractive things, and, and none of them in and of itself, are are bad things. They don't sound like bad things, right? Good food. Who doesn't like a delicious meal? Lord knows I do, right? That's fine. Pleasing to the eye. Who's not attracted to beauty, right? Beauty's not an evil thing. God made things beautiful. I like pretty things. And desiring to make me wise, that's not so bad, right? I want to be more discerning. I want to know so I can make good choices in life, right? That's a good thing, but what we're seeing is that her curiosity here is starting to overrule her trust in God. It's overruling her trust in God. Trust is another word for faith. Her curiosity for these things is starting to overrule her faith. And, and, and notice she doesn't go to God to ask the questions so he can sort of clarify things that she's wondering about. You know, she could have, God, your, your snake's talking and saying some crud that I'm not sure about here. You, you know, that would have been great. And that would have been allowed too, because we are allowed to go to God with our questions, aren't we? He loves it. He's our father. He's a good father. He loves. Who, who doesn't love their kids asking them questions, right? And that would have been allowed. We can go and we can ask him for, for, for knowledge and understanding. We can go to him rather and try and seek elsewhere for our main source of understanding, which is what Eve is doing here. And so she eats it. I think very few of us would, would say, oh, this is pure evil. I want to do this. Uh, few of us would do that, but our brains will immediately go and find justifications for things, right? Some good reason why this would be a positive thing to do. So Eve is not unique here. She's not the most horrible of the people. She's just, she's one of us. It's, it's a decision we have all made before. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Wait, look, did you notice that? Where's Adam during all of this? He's with her. He's standing right there. I don't, growing up, I always pictured Eve, you know, like kind of getting cornered by the snake, right? And, and all by herself. And then Adam, you know, walks up. What the, oh, what have you done? I would have never let this happen. This is what happens when you let a woman alone to make their own decisions. No, no. Adam is right there. He's right there. There's no relationship. There's no talking between them happening. He is the quintessential couch potato. (laughs) Right? Eve is having this stimulating conversation with a talking snake, and Adam is just standing there on his phone playing Pokemon. Yeah, yeah, oh, cool, yeah, no, fruit looks good, all right, good, evil, all right, right? Offers no input whatsoever. Adam has a talking snake and the world's only naked lady beside him, and he cannot be bothered to pay attention to anything (laughs) but the TV. (laughs) It's a little close to home for some of us, I understand. My office is always open for counseling. <laughs> okay. Verse, let's look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for each other, for themselves. So who, who sewed the fig leaves? They did. It's not God. They did this. Their first act of gaining all this new freedom is being obsessed with modesty. Later on, God is going to create, he's going to put together some garments for them because to, to protect their bodies from the elements because he's about to kick them out into the big bad world out there. But as far as, you know, covering up their naughty bits, that's not God. That is, that is, that is them. God's not rushing in going, hey, whoa, guys, come on, keep it, keep it PG here, all right? We got squirrels running around the garden." <laughs> No, no, no. There's no indication that God has ever been put off by their sexuality or anything like that. He invented the whole thing. This is Adam and Eve bringing shame upon themselves. They have essentially in one moment gone from being these fearless, innocent creatures you know, like a, like a two-year-old, right? Whoever heard of a, I've I've raised, I have a couple of those. I've had a couple of those and never once did any of my two-year-old toddlers, you know, running through the house during naked time, run into the living room and go, oh, we have company. I'm sorry. Let me put something on real fast. (laughs) Never once. God, God makes, he makes male and he makes female. And it says they, they both reveal this precious mysterious facet of God himself and in the fall we see how femininity and masculinity which was meant to be celebrated and honored suddenly get start to unravel and all of this becomes a source of shame and blame and power struggles between the sexes and perversion and lust and all this mess that we live with on a daily basis and, and this is another area, I'm just going to throw it out there, that the church has to repent itself for, for the ways that we, we, over the centuries that we've reinforced this, this culture of shame and blame about gender and sexuality and the struggle for power based on which gender is over which and all this kind of thing, rather than function as a beacon of light to the world of mutual respect, mutual honor between men and women we're going to see in this story. Oh, they didn't like that. They cut me off. (laughs) We're going to see in this story that God himself, he calls it out. He's going to call it out, right? And he's going to warn people of what they have now set themselves up for in this, this sort of conflict. In verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It happens that fast. They are already trying to separate themselves from God. For the first time, for the first time, instantly, relationships are already being torn apart. They're hiding. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Here is God doing what he really continues to do throughout the Bible, is pursue his people. He's pursuing, he's pursuing, to pursue our hearts. He's still trying, he's trying, he's trying. He's trying to, he's given, I think, Adam an opportunity to bring out his best. He's giving his kids an opportunity to, to fess up to what they've done. To say, God, I'm right here. I have messed up. I've messed up big time. Here's what happened. Here's what we did. We need your help. We're so sorry. Obviously, something's changed here, but we need you. We're desperate for you. He wants them to face up to what has happened. Hey Adam, where are you? I'm hiding. Yeah. Think about that for a second, little man. When did that start? When did, when did you ever think you could hide from me? When did you ever think you needed to hide from me? Has this ever happened? Adam, you're hiding in the bushes. First of all, I'm God. That's dumb, right? <laughs> I, have, I have an adorable little six-year-old girl, and she, is, she loves to play hide-and-seek. And she giggles all the way to her hiding place. <laughs> Just runs and giggles and giggles while she's there. this is like, and, and God's going, when did you think this does any good, right? What's driving you inside right now to think you need to run into the bushes and that you even could when you hear me coming, Adam, do you see what's going on inside you? Verse 10. So Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So that made sense. None of this makes sense. And so God says, who told you that you were naked? When did nakedness even become a category for you? When did the difference between naked and clothed come into your mind? He says, have you eaten from that tree? He's asking Adam to confess, to own up, take responsibility, to display that image of God that's still in him by embracing truth. Have that servant's heart and but in his brokenness now, that's not how Adam responds. God says, what happened? What happened here? And what is Adam's first words? The woman. First instinct to deflect blame onto Eve. And what's his next instinct? His very next words, that you made me. Within the first sentence, he accuses two other people. The woman, you see, okay, here's the thing. The woman, I was just standing on my phone. She's the one who, she ate. I didn't, I was, you know, that was not. And look, you made her. You, you know, you're the one who just, I mean, she's your daughter and the trouble, you need to do something about this. And God's like, okay, maybe I'll have better luck with Eve. Eve, what is this that you've done? And the first one out of her mouth, the serpent. The serpent tricked me. It was the serpent, I mean, it, was the, it wasn't me. I was just eating some granola over here, and it was great. And then he's just started talking. I'm looking for lunch. He's just, I mean, who let the serpent in here anyway? I mean, have you heard the way he, can, the way he has with words? He can talk to a woman. I mean, that is not my fault. Somebody else, it's all somebody else's fault. Now, what does this have to do with us today? The Apostle Paul, he says this right here is the beginning of something... That would affect all of us and continue to affect us. Paul says that when Adam sinned in Romans, he said, sin entered the world. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And it's interesting, there's a lot going on here, but just for the sake of time, there there is a kind of sinning that's the action that we do, right? We do something, we do a sin, just like Adam, he did a sin. But sin also becomes this force. It's described in the scriptures as this like entity almost, right? this, this corruption, like systemic corruption that has entered the world that we live in. And it spreads throughout the earth. And this story of Adam and Eve, the story is repeated over and over and again and again. This is the story that happens because it happens over and over. We shout at the screen and we know better and we end up doing it. And sometimes we know we're doing, it's wrong. And so we tell ourselves, do it quicker. We think, Adam and Eve, how could you? This, that was so terrible. I would have done a much better job. No. No, you have a chance every single day to do a much better job. And we don't because we're broken. There's something broken. And Paul says that that sin brings death. And he's not just talking about death like growing old and dying. That's always been happening, Right? creatures have been living and dying for billions of years. That's just scientifically established. What he's talking about here is something far worse, far worse, the death of the spirit. There is a far worse death going on here. From that point on, the the door is now open for all of us to sin, all of us sin, and, and thus for us all to face real eternal death. And no matter how good or religious or pious we see people throughout history have tried to be or do good works, how many good works a person did, it doesn't bring a dead spirit back to life. The spirit is still dead. Basically, we have a a world full of of dead people pretending to be alive until Jesus, until Jesus comes on the scene. Hallelujah. He comes on the scene and he brings life back to humanity. he brings spiritual life, eternal life. What was born into death after the garden is now being restored in the kingdom. And and so when we put our faith in Jesus, he brings our spirit alive again. He brings our spirit that was dead alive again. And the early church uses this beautiful phrase over and over. They use this picture of being reborn, born again. Our spirits that were dead are made alive again. What died in Adam is made alive in Jesus. Hallelujah. So, what does this mean for us today, this brokenness? How do we see it today? We, we saw last week in Genesis 1 and 2 that as image bearers of God, we have this inner drive in the core of our being. We can see it in a number of areas, such as we, we have this drive, all of us, to be relational, to be responsible, to be reproductive. This is humanity at its best. We're, 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 we're walking in the image of God here right? To be relational, responsible, and reproductive. Created to be relational as he is relational. Reproductive or co-creative, right? It doesn't just have to do with like having kids. It's talking about that creative instinct that's with all, within all of us to create, to, to not just take from whatever we see, but actually to make something new and to, to create and put something out there. To be responsible, to rule and care for creation. But because we are now born broken image bearers. Even this inner divine DNA is corrupted. Down to our cords, corrupted. And so what Genesis 3 with this story shows us is that instead of being relational, we choose alienation. This is their first act is to run, to hide. And we do it today, whether we're mad at God, or maybe it's just because uh, we're ashamed of something we've done. So our our first instinct is run, hide, run, hide. Or maybe it's that we just don't want to submit ourselves to his authority. We hide from God ultimately because we don't really believe that he is after our good. We really believe that if he's there at all, he's holding out on us. He's holding out. He's not not as good as he could be. We want to be autonomous. Even as Christians, even even those who are would say, no, we believe in Jesus, we're followers of Jesus, we still alienate ourselves. We have this drive inside us now to to alienate ourselves from our fellow brothers and sisters, don't we? Right? So when you you know you messed up this week and you come in the door with your happy face and acting like everything's good. Right? We we, instead of leaning into relationships which is what we were made for. And instead of being responsible rulers and caretakers and cultivators of the world, we rebel against that. And we rebel against that call and we abuse the very world that we're supposed to be attending to. We don't take responsibility. We play the blame and shame game. It's everybody else's fault. It's the, and, and that spiritual pollution eventually it ruins the planet. And so the world that we're even called to care for, it's just the, it was one of the first callings that we have from God that we're called to care for, to tend to. The world starts to unravel and it it groans in pain because of our series of bad choices created to rule over creation. But most of us are, or I won't say most, I'll say some of us are unable or unwilling to even rule over our appetites. And instead of expressing the image of God in our creative reproductive calling, we choose greed. We take, we consume rather than create. And this is what Genesis 3 tells us, that we always want more. We always want more. We want what what we don't have yet. We want more. We're never satisfied with what we have. We want a humanity upgrade, right? We want more than enough, more than enough. We want bigger, faster, more convenient, more comfortable, sexier, more power. It's just, it's just there. And ever since this started happening, we've been suffering from an identity crisis, an identity crisis. Humanity is a race in each of us individually. We're like kids who've been sold a bunch of fake IDs. We're adopted into the royal family. And we've been sold a fake ID. And and we, we've been tricked into thinking that's who we actually are. Satan, his lie to Eve, isn't just, hey, do this, and you'll know some new stuff, some more stuff. His lie to her, the, the tragedy of the story, is... That that new fake ID that he gives her, in that act, she also has to give up her former identity. She has to give up what she was as a child, as an image bearer. So here's, here's, here's a, there's several takeaways we can take from this story, but we'll save most of them for our home life groups. I want to say one, and that is this. Freedom outside of function is foolishness. Freedom outside of function is foolishness. Now, let me explain what that means to me. Freedom outside of function is foolishness, meaning we will never find greater satisfaction, we'll never find greater joy, greater contentment, fulfillment, as when we are walking in the will of our Father. When we discover and get a glimpse of who our true identity is, that is when ultimate joy it's something we, we, live, we live in ultimate joy there. When we discover the identity he has declared for us, that he created us for, the purpose he created us for, you'll never know more joy than walking in that. To always be craving more and assuming that God's holding out on us. He's holding out on us. That, that he's, he's placing restraints on what we do. That is to desire something that we were not created for. Right? And it can't lead to joy. So to me, any example, and I didn't you know, believe this when I wasn't serving God, I thought he's holding out. There's more joy to be had on my own. But what we realize is any example of his actually placing restraints on us is actually a part of his love. It's an act of love. It is an act of love. Real freedom happens when we learn the appropriate way to be the best version who we really are. That's how we accomplish everything God wants for us. You remember last week, our our, our little goldfish, if you were here, there he is, little guy. I'm sure right after this picture was taken, he was put back in the water. Don't (laughs) worry. Now, I'm not positive how he got out of his bowl, but uh, here's the scenario uh, I imagine. So I'll share it with you. I think this little goldfish was swimming back and forth in his bowl. He was saying, I can't believe this. Just look at this family. Look at them. They just walk around. Every member of this family gets to walk around, do whatever they want. I'm stuck in here. They keep me in here. Really? Do you see how small this is? They want a snack? They just go to the kitchen. They get it anytime they want. They walk right by me with their sandwich, just rub it in my face. All I, all I get, I have to wait for them to put flakes on top. I'm flakes! They, seriously? I just got to stand here and take it. The dog gets to walk around. The dog walks anywhere in the house he wants to. And the cat just sits there with his little bug eyes staring at me. You know what? I'm not going to take it anymore. All right? I don't have to. I am not going to remain in this bowl for your amusement. I am out of here. Whoosh. The grass is always greener. What we find is that grass is always greener principle. That's something we torture ourselves with, right? And then we blame God. We blame God. So that whenever God says, thou shalt not do that, thou shalt do this, we go, no. No, there he goes, trying to squish my potential. (laughs) When understanding our identity When the fish understands who he is, what he's created for, where he thrives the most, when we understand our identity, when we live within those loving boundaries, it actually helps us become what we were designed to be. And it keeps us safe. It keeps us productive, right? So we can pour our energies into the things that he's called us to do, into love rather than rebellion. Amen. Let me say this in conclusion. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion. But right now, I'm going to say this. This story is tragic. But it, it has hope built right into it. And in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of this heartbreaking turn of events, God prophesies hope. He says to Satan, just so you know, eventually this woman's seed, this woman's descendant is going to crush you. In the process of crushing you, you're going to wound him, but you're, you're going to go head to head with this woman's descendant, and he is going to be victorious over you, and through the process of sacrificing himself, so God is already reassuring them. He's giving them reassurance right here. In the future, you people, Adam and Eve and your descendants, you will be rescued from all of this. The works of Satan will be destroyed. There is hope for us here. There's hope, but it's only found by looking to the one who can redeem us, the one who can rescue us, who can heal the cracks, who can bring healing into our lives. The Hebrews used that word shalom. It wasn't just a a throwaway word for hello or peace or something like that. This word shalom to them meant the, the total repair of what is broken so that there is nothing missing and nothing broken in your life. And this is what Jesus brings. This is the kingdom. This is walking in the kingdom. Jesus Christ... Hallelujah Praise God, in the good news, you are not the sum of your fears, you are not the sum of your sins. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. You are who Christ on that cross declared you to be, a beloved child of God, a beloved child who is worth dying for. that is who He declared you to be, worth dying for, clothed in Christ, beloved by. your your father God. So it's time to tear up the fake ID. Amen. And walk in the truth of who you really are. Praise God. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.